Ultimate Escape is a family-friendly ministry that addresses sexuality. Some episodes may contain sensitive terms and subject matter, especially for younger children. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ultimate Escape Podcast. I'm your host, David Chenault. You know, in a world of misinformation and confusion about sex and sexuality, Ultimate Escape was created to provide a place to talk openly and honestly, a voice of truth about sexuality in the context of God's vision for humanity. And today is no different. We're going to tackle a topic today, which is a very serious topic, but one that is very timely in the news and headlines around the world. We're going to talk about unwanted sex, sexual harassment, sexual assault, times when sex is used by one person to harm someone else. We'll talk about how we respond to both the victim and the person who committed the act. And most importantly, how can we help healing begin? That's our topic. So join us today as we talk with Steve Holliday, the founder of the Ultimate Escape Ministry, right here on the Ultimate Escape Podcast. So welcome to the studio. Steve Holliday with us today. David Schnault with you here. Steve, we're going to talk about something uh, that uh, is very timely, I think, uh, relevant to what's going on in the news and a very serious topic. We've covered a lot of fun things here and there, but in the news recently, of course, over the summertime 2018, uh, we've had um, a discussion of uh, Supreme Court nominations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, for example, being uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. And through that process, uh, out of that came an accusation of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so uh, not to delve into the politics, uh, left or right, conservative, liberal, anything like that, but we really just want to address some of the issues uh, that uh, swirl around this topic that has become very important in our society. Uh, also coming off the heels of, uh, of uh, Hollywood, the sexual abuse mm-hmm. claims in Hollywood, the Me Too movements, and, and all these kinds of things have really brought the idea of uh, sexual abuse to the forefront. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it mostly uh, from a female perspective now, uh, and that seems to be this this rallying cry of folks who say it's time to be heard, uh, and it brings in all of these discussions. So we want to approach that today and talk a little bit about uh, these ideas. Uh, first of all, when we talk about sexual assault or mm-hmm. sexual unwanted sexual advances, there there seems to be a, a wide range of possibilities there. Right. Well, let's get our terminology straight first so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, everything from uh, sexual harassment, which often may be limited to verbal. Um, you know, someone is either making advances at, at me that are unwanted or they're making comments about me that are very sexualized that uh, that I'm not looking for, uh, didn't invite, don't want. You know, I, I hate to even put sexual abuse in uh, in a spectrum of, you know, this is not all that bad, this is really bad uh, spectrum, but just, you know, from across the board of what could happen, uh, there can be, you know, one-time groping. Uh, someone is touching an area of my body that's a sexual area uh, that's unwanted. To, you know, that's one bookend to the other of, you know, night after night after night, a uh, five-year-old girl, her mother's boyfriend is um, having sex with her, raping her over and over. And that happens for years and years and years. Right. Okay, so those are two bookends of, you know, what can be referred to as sexual abuse or sexual trauma. And, you know, and there's a lot of room in between those two, obviously. Um, you know, obviously in the news more recently, uh, as far as the Supreme Court situation, uh, you're talking about a, a limited, a one-time thing, you know, d- d- between two teenagers uh, is the accusation. With the Hollywood 
situation you, you've got across the board. Uh, you know, you know, pretty significant sexual behavior uh, that that happens um, repeatedly from individuals. Uh, all of this. N- number one, I'm just glad that our culture is finally talking about something and and consistently talking about it. Not like hey, we talked about it for a day or two and then everybody forgets about it. Right. Uh, and and yes, the Me Too movement. Uh, there are a lot of good things that have happened as a result of that. Uh, and one of those is, you know, there's a level of empowering people to tell their story, uh, that it, it gives them a way to have a voice, whereas before they may not have had, had a way to speak. You know, and all of this also brings about some concerns and alarms and fears. You know, lo- looking again, looking at some bookends, okay, you've got mothers of teenage boys who live in fear uh, in a day and age where all it takes is one girl making an accusation and the the reputation of this boy uh, is destroyed you know what what does that mean for their future uh what are people going to always think about their son mm-hmm. uh and and what if it's unfounded there's no way to prove all it takes is an accusation and everybody immediately believes the girl uh is kind of the mindset at the moment among some moms that you know I see posts on social media that say hey okay this this mother right. is fearful that that's going to happen to her son mm-hmm. uh, and yet we're coming on the heels of you know generations and generations and generations i mean you know for for hundreds if not thousands of years it's been the opposite um that girls have been sexually abused by guys and certainly not limited you know i'm not trying to reinforce a myth that only girls are victims of sexual abuse okay? sure. that's that's sure. what i'm talking about at the moment that girls are abused by a guy and they they have no way to get that out there. Mm-hmm. They, they've got no way to report it. Or if they do, they're not going to be believed. Or, you know, what often happens, especially in a courtroom, is the accuser becomes the one who is blamed or the one who is demonized. Right. Uh, and so you have a girl who reports a sexual assault. And, you know, when, when they're sitting there on the stand and, and they're being... Uh, interviewed by the uh, defense attorney, it's like, hey, you really wanted this, and you enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is so messed up right. in her culture. There's There seems to be multiple aspects to this uh, on a single claim, for example, or a single uh, incident where, again, we're not necessarily limiting it to a woman or, or to a girl, but a person makes a, an outcry that says this happened to me. So you've got multiple things that are involved there. You've got, first of all, is it true? Did it really happen? Did it not happen? And beyond that, let's say it did really happen. Uh, it, it certainly happened. And then you've got uh, the idea of, okay, if it happened, who is responsible for that happening? Was it uh, was it this person? Was it that person? Have we identified the right person as the mm-hmm. person that, that, that is responsible for it? And then one step further, then you get into the idea of consent. And, and was there consent or not consent? Was it uh, initially given consent and then later not? So you have all these different aspects which seem to go into – it's not just a simple – No, it is messy. Yeah. yeah. And, and then to confound it, um, hey, sometimes a memory – of especially a traumatic event, mm-hmm. uh, it's not stored in the same part of the brain that just normal memory. You know, the hippocampus is the the memory spot in the brain, but when you come to emotional memory, that's amygdala. Uh, and oftentimes, in a traumatic situation, I don't remember things sequentially. I can't just go to that file drawer, open that drawer, turn to that folder, and say, "Okay, it happened this, 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 this." You know, I can just give you a chronological picture of what happened. 
And so when, you know, when someone is pressed for details, well, exactly where were you and who said what first? I may not remember that. It may just be all, all jumbled up. So the harder I try to remember it, the harder it becomes to remember. It's like the, the more I try to dig it up, the more it wants to stay buried. Right. Um, there is no simple explanation when it comes to dealing with the topic of sexual assault. And, you know, from my chair, I mean, I, I work with people week in, week out. Uh, around the area of sexual trauma, most people I work with, it's a history thing. And it may be a teenager, it may be an adult. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is not at all uncommon for a parent to bring their teenager in to to get help for the teenager. And as we're uh, exploring through all the emotions and relationship and, and, you know, in, in the family system, that we're functioning, uh, okay, in, in this part of the system, whether we're talking about dad or mom, uh, okay, what's going on for you? Is this triggering something? And oftentimes uh, we'll find out, oh, the reason mom is is reacting so intensely to a son looking at pornography is because that's triggering her own sexual abuse background. Right. Uh, and, and again, it's not uncommon uh, as I'm talking with a, a mom or a dad individually and they reveal, yes, this happened, find out, oh, they've never even shared that with their spouse. Mm. You know, well, I, you know, I don't want them to know it's, uh, and there's so much behind that. Uh, Hey, is that how how they're going to react, how they're going to feel toward me in some cultures uh, that there's this uh, very real dynamic of if someone else has been sexual with me, then my husband will no longer want me. I get that a lot with the Latin American culture. Um, the reason, I, I don't want to let my husband know I got raped is he won't be interested in me anymore. And I'm not trying to, to um, single out or blame or, or, or say that, you know, people from this culture, they're, they're, they're bad or there's something wrong. It's, just, it's a reality. That's a real dynamic in that culture. I'm not saying it's not present in any other cultures. Right. Um, but with the work that I've done uh, in Brazil, uh, in Honduras, uh, in Guatemala recently, finding more and more. That, yeah, people don't want to, or specifically women, don't want to talk about their sexual trauma history mm-hmm. with their husbands for fear of how their husbands are going to look at them or treat them right. from that point forward. Well, and I think we've had a conversation before. Uh, one of the aspects of this is we've talked about the Hollywood aspect. Mm-hmm. We talk about a, um, a culture, a work environment, which unfortunately has over generations uh, lend itself to... Uh, situations of of sexual activity is expected in order to get work, and and that those kinds of those mm-hmm. kinds of accusations have been made. And where in that regard, um, in, instead of what you're talking about, where we don't talk about it because we don't want we're afraid of of, of what it might uh, say about me as a person to my current spouse or current partner. In the Hollywood situation, we've had this discussion before that you see people who over-sexualize as a compensation for that, mm-hmm. as a way to minimize the the sexual violation or exactly. the assault that they had before. Right. If it's not important, if it's not a big deal, then it's not a big deal. So if I can, if I make sex not a big deal, the way I dress, the mm-hmm. way I act, the, the over-sexualizing myself, then that minimizes what sex means to me, and therefore the event that happened is not that important. Right. Let me um, give you an example. Um, young. 20s age uh, female is sexually assaulted by a friend and so this individual who up to this point has not been sexual with anyone except um, a very significant relationship that is um, at this point a, a fiance relationship you know planning to get married uh, not been sexual with anybody ever through history 
outside of that relationship, uh, now is raped by a friend, and over the course of the next 18 months, has upwards of 30 sex partners. Hmm. So go from no promiscuity uh, as our culture would define promiscuity right. um, to now, you know, on any given night, may have anonymous sex, you know, go to a bar, find someone and hook up. Um, okay, that behavior is obviously a response. What's that behavior saying? Mm-hmm. Well, the, you know, one interpretation of that behavior is sex isn't anything special. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there, there are so many layers of that kind of a trauma response. Right. But one of those layers is I have to minimize the importance of sex because if in my mind sex is no big deal, then what happened to me mm-hmm. is no big deal. Right. We've seen multiple childhood stars, uh, Hollywood stars, right. that that go from what you would consider a very innocent childhood acting career and and dr- what you know some people would say drop off the the, mm-hmm. the wagon into a very over sexualized not saying it's always the case but that is certainly one one way to explain right. that possible behavior right uh okay so let's take a, a, a hypothetical you've got a a young whether it's a, a movie tv star um recording artist but you've got a young young star on the horizon mm-hmm. and they're working with uh, a respected person in the industry, co-writing. They're in this relationship now, and there's a sexual assault. The amount of pressure to not report that, to not talk about it, because what does that mean in my industry? If I report that this well-respected person did this to me, mm-hmm. who's going to believe me? Will anybody believe me? You know, what's the story going to be? Oh, that well, that person, they threw themselves at me. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they respect me, they, they admire me, and um, it was all their idea. Uh, I went along with it, or it was mutual consent. The the power difference alone, whether there's an age difference or not, the power difference of here's somebody who's you know way up here in their career, I'm way down here in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an, an inability to give consent, just because of the power differential. It's like um, a student in a class uh, being sexually involved with an instructor. It doesn't matter that we're both adults. The fact that there's a power differential puts this in a context of sexual abuse, not two consenting equals. Right. Which is one reason why most state laws, um, federal laws, uh, define uh, sexual activity between an adult and a minor. Regardless, there, there is no consent between an adult and a minor because the minor has no way to, to, to apply consent. Uh, right. And, and, you know, obviously state laws vary by sure. state. And, you know, is it it's a two-year difference, a four-year difference yeah. from a practical standpoint? Mm-hmm. Consent, if somebody's bigger, stronger, okay, mm-hmm. then they, they can be forceful. I, there, there's no ability to give consent because somebody can force me. Right. From an emotional standpoint, I may not be able to give consent because what if I like and respect this person? Right. From a pressure standpoint, hey, I want people to like me. I don't want anybody to be mad at me. And I've got to show up at work tomorrow and this person's going to be there because they're a coworker. Mm-hmm. And do I really want to walk in and uh, and they're mad at me? Because I didn't go along with this, mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many different kinds of uh, of pressure, and it's not limited to an age difference right. or a physically somebody forced me to do something. Right, right. And it comes back to what we talked about earlier: all these different aspects, and then it revolves around if one of these things is questionable, if one, if there's, um, if there's not quite uh, accurate, you know, the memory is not quite accurate, then instantly the original claim becomes suspect and we call into question the integrity of mm-hmm. the entire thing as opposed to 
well, maybe just part of this story is not right. Yeah, so if I get a detail wrong as I'm you know, recounting my memory of this, uh, and somebody can prove that details off, mm-hmm. then it yeah, then it raises doubt. Oh, well, they're just making up the whole thing. Right. Well, no, reality may be that was their best memory of it, and that memory in their mind was accurate, but the details are are sloppy. Right. You know, there's so many different uh, perspectives to look at this. Let, let's switch gears for a moment uh, and looking at okay, what if I am a, a teenage guy on a on a date. With a teenage girl, mm-hmm. we go out. We're you know, sit in our car in a private area, and maybe there's um, there's kissing. There's you know what people would refer to as kind of light petting. You know, their hands on um, sexual areas, but clothes are on. Um, and in our culture, people look at that as well. You know, what would you expect? That's kind of what teenagers do. I'm not talking about is this God's plan and is this you know a, appropriate right. sexual activity. I'm talking about it in reality what often happens. And let's say it is consensual. Um, and then um, that relationship falls apart. Uh, guy or girl breaks up. Okay, they're no longer dating, um, and somebody's mad about that. And so they say, "Well, I, no, that wasn't consensual. I didn't want to do that. Um, he he made me do that." What recourse does a young man have in that situation? I can't prove that there. There's no way uh, because it's just the two of us, mm-hmm. and there's no kind of evidence. You know, short of we had a recording of it, which I highly wouldn't recommend, and typically that doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, right. So it's just I said, you said, and I know from a parent's standpoint, mm-hmm. that's a scary thing. Right. Because whether your kids are teenagers or young adults, the fear of them being in a situation where there can be an accusation and they have no way to prove, disprove uh, on both sides of that. Uh, so let's you know put the same situation back and the guy does force himself on a girl. How can she prove that? I, I can't. And that's, again, that's just one of the inherent problems mm-hmm. in our in the way our culture does dating and spending time together in isolation, uh, which, again, to me, that's a good boundary to have you know, as, a, as a teenager dating. We're not going to do isolation. You know, we're going to, we date and we stay in public areas where you know, there's accountability right. and there are witnesses so that if something ever does come up. Hey, there are people around that can corroborate our story. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, that, that's a whole other topic of what healthy boundaries are <laughs> in dating. That, that's a whole other podcast we could do. Well, and that's and that we I mean, we've talked about. It. Obviously, when we're talking about sexuality from a healthy God perspective, um, uh, that would solve a lot of those issues. If if we if we stayed, um, unfortunately, reality is different right. than uh, than the, than the ideal, mm-hmm. and so then we find ourselves in issues and situations and trying to sort out the mess on the other side of that. Okay, so let me bring it up. A, Another real example, uh, you've got a, a teenage guy who is driving, and the girl that he's on a date with that night is in the passenger seat. He just kind of all of a sudden realizes, hey, wait a minute, she's not in the passenger seat anymore. Literally, he's driving down the road, and she has unzipped the zipper of his jeans, and she's starting to perform oral sex on this guy as he's driving down the road. He didn't ask for it. On a logical, conscious level, he's not looking for this, and he's not wanting it. I'm not saying that there's no level of pleasure uh, or that, you know, if if she had said, hey, do you want me to do this, that there might not have been a temptation on him to say, oh, absolutely. Again, I'm not trying to sure, you know, p- sure. paint a picture that's not realistic, but in this situation, he's not looking for it. She's doing it. Who in the world is going to believe the 16-year-old boy yeah. who says, hey, this girl did that. She forced herself. I didn't want her to do it. You find me any adults that are going to buy that the 16-year-old boy didn't want that to happen. Right. That's a cultural, it, it's a cultural core belief. In our culture, we believe all guys want sex. Mm-hmm. All guys want sex 
from anybody who's willing to give it to them. Now flip that around from a gender standpoint and it's a, a girl and the guy is the one uh, who is seizing an opportunity to perform some kind of sexual behavior. And the girl says, I didn't want that. You know, he shouldn't have done that. This is, this is abuse. Is there any doubt that our culture would believe the girl didn't want that? No, because in our culture, yeah, guys are the aggressors. And girls are the ones who are being forced on. Right. Um, and I'm just saying that both of those scripts are inaccurate uh, at times. Right. There is a level of accuracy to them. Otherwise, we wouldn't, have, why we have, them. Right. We, we right. wouldn't have those as cultural yeah. norms. So you've got both sides of that, which, is, which therein lies the mm-hmm. problem. So, so how do we take a step toward healing? Because on, on the other end of this, whether it's... Um, whether it's as the high-profile case we've seen in the Supreme Court issues or we've seen in the Hollywood uh, reports. Um, how do people get past uh, – and get past is even, a, is even a dangerous thing to say. I mean, yeah, because it may not happen. I address mm-hmm. that, yeah. I mean, we, that, that's, that's sometimes the easy thing to say. Yeah. We just have to get past this and move on. That's not always possible. Right. In fact, that's almost never possible. Yeah, I think it's, it, it becomes a part of you. It's, it's always there. You know, and uh, if, if anyone has listened to the first few episodes of this podcast, they've heard my story. They've heard Holly's story. Both of us are survivors of um, childhood or adolescent sexual abuse. You know, we have a unique perspective on this as both male and female. Mm-hmm. And I've written on my blog, you know, steveholiday.org. I have written a couple of um, parts in a series on my journey Uh, Just last fall, going back to my neighborhood where childhood sexual abuse happened and and that whole healing journey and and what that experience was about. So when you say get past, um, I don't know that most people ever get past it as much as we learn how, you know, how do we live life and enjoy life uh, and and not be so susceptible to triggers, Uh, you know, memories that come up or, you know, being put in situations that arouse some of those same emotions of, uh, of anger uh, or fear or shame. And oftentimes, you know, a big part of that is getting the secret out, mm-hmm. uh, ha- having a place to have our voice listened to and believed. And that's huge, the, the belief factor. Mm-hmm. We had a situation back years ago where uh, at a weekend event, uh, a, a young teenage girl in the audience um, identified herself as um, the one who asked a question about her mother's boyfriend was uh, abusing her. Come to find out, as we did more exploring and, and made the appropriate reports and, and helped uh, her walk through that situation, uh, she had reported that to her mom, um, that her mom's boyfriend had been sexually assaulting her. And when she told her mom, her mom slapped her and told her never to say anything like that again. Now, obviously, that reaction, that's about her mom. Uh, and, and, you know, either fear of what the what the boyfriend will do, fear of the boyfriend leaving and the mom being left alone. You know, that, that, that that's about mom. But it obviously had a huge effect on daughter because being slapped and told not to speak about it communicates a lot. Mm-hmm. It says you don't matter. You're not important. It says I don't believe you. It says there's basically there's nothing wrong with it. You just need to live with it. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that gets communicated mm-hmm. in a, a literally just a few seconds. You know, let's be liberal and say that's a, that was a 10-second interaction. Wow, that was a 10 seconds that had a huge effect on that 12-year-old girl. Right. The other question that comes up is sharing that, getting through that initial pain, that fear, getting get, dealing with that fear and that pain that deals with sharing your story. 
how public are you? Because in one regard, publicity helps other people. Being open about your story. I know that you mm-hmm. and Holly sharing your story gives people the courage to be able to step up and say, you know what, I've lived through that myself. Mm-hmm. I've had those same experiences, and I can now see it's not the end of the world. I can I can uh, share that. I can I can open up about that and and move on. Mm-hmm. At the same time. Uh, opening up about things can have some detrimental aspects. Definitely, that can go south very quickly. Sure. Uh, so my recommendation is that you know at least beginning, uh, we find an individual or a, a small group. You know that that small group may be a therapy group, uh, a support group, you know a close group of friends. But I find it an individual or a small group that I open up and say, "Hey, here's what happened." In a healthy functioning situation, what I hear back is, uh, "I hear you." I'm paying attention to you, that, that we get affirming, nurturing messages. Uh, hey, that shouldn't have happened. That was not your fault. That when I hear that, it doesn't change anything of how I feel about you. You know, you're not dirty. You're not bad. Uh, that, that kind of a situation, uh, because oftentimes in, in a person's head, if I tell this, people are going to have a negative reaction. Uh, they won't respect me anymore. They'll think it's my fault. I mean, there's some kind of an, I, I play this over in my head over and over. I'm expecting the negative kind of response. And when that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. it totally changes how I've contextualized this. Um, and so now uh, these false, false beliefs, expectations, they, they start to correct. And that can be a huge first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, how, how public do I go with that? Well, over time on my healing journey, I may begin to tell people outside of my really close inner circle. But I would certainly not suggest anybody ever begin this process by going into some huge public forum right. uh, because it's not a safe environment. Mm-hmm. And you're likely to hear you know, very negative, very condemning messages back, especially if it's any kind of a public forum that involves um, politics or other relationships. For example, if I, if I go in front of my whole church and say, hey, the pastor sexually assaulted me. Well, that's going to be polarizing in a heartbeat because there will be some people who are going to instantly take the pastor's side. Mm-hmm. There will be some people who instantly take the you know, the accuser's side. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden now you've got th- th- this huge dynamic that's swirling around in the system mm-hmm. that's really not about the individuals involved. It's about the, the bigger system in right. question. Right. And, and same thing with news media. I would never counsel somebody to, hey, go go to a news outlet and share your story right. uh, as you're starting – you know, this process, there may be a time where you, you need to take your story public, but for your own self-protection and healing, you know, deal with this on a, a much more limited basis at mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Does that exclude the the accused, the person who possibly uh, who's alleged to be involved in this? I always say that there may be a time to confront an abuser, but it's probably not when you're coming out the starting gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially if you're a parent and your child is telling you that they have been abused. That is not the time to go jump in the truck, you know, with your shotgun hanging in the back window right. and you know, squeal up tires at the front door of the of the person who has been accused, um, and pull out that gun and go confront them. Uh, gun or no gun, that's just that's not the time to go confront someone. There may be a time that they need to be confronted, um, and it may or may not need to be you involved in that initial confrontation. Um, but that, that's not right now. Right now we've got more important things than that taking care of our child. Uh, so right now the more important thing is taking care of you as the individual, which will most likely involve I need to get a competent therapist who's been trained in sexual trauma. Um, and again, I want to emphasize that who has been trained in sexual trauma. 
Uh, just going to a counselor who happens to be a counselor doesn't mean that they know anything about working with victims of sexual trauma. Uh, so I always want to reinforce, make sure that you ask those questions on the front end. Uh, hey, are you trained in sexual trauma? Not do you work with sexual abuse victims? Because there are a whole bunch of counselors who work with sexual abuse and have, and have never had any training whatsoever. They just do it because they're a counselor. Yeah. And frankly, so, there's there's a lot of it. There's a lot of folks right. out there who've been affected by sexual abuse in one way or the other. Right. And a lot of damage is done by professionals who have no training. And then you have even more cleanup that mm. needs to be done by somebody who does know what they're doing. Right. Uh, so always say, hey, ask on the front end, uh, do you have training in working with sexual abuse? What is that training? Mm. And any counselor who's worth their salt will be more than happy to tell you about their training because they've invested a lot of hours and a lot of dollars in that training. And so they'll be able to say, yes, I worked under the supervision of this person at this place, and that's all that we specialized in that, and I had a 1,000 hours of, uh, or I, I had these graduate classes in sexual trauma, sexual abuse. There should be some kind of response like that coming from a competent professional, not, oh, yeah, I've, I've been working for 20 years uh, with people who are, you know, have been sexually abused. Well, what that communicates to me is I've got no training at all, but... I'm happy to work with those clients, even though I may not really know what I'm doing. And we've touched along this a little bit already, but talk a little bit about how we respond to someone who makes, in the technical term, makes the outcry. Someone who says, I need to share something with you, or, or, or this is I've got to get this off my chest. This is something I need to tell, tell you about. Because we're seeing this more and more, and mm-hmm. the real question is, how do we respond to folks? We've touched a little bit about that, but let's talk about that again, about... Uh, as a parent, perhaps as a as a friend, as a as a as a colleague, as a as a one student to another student, um, here's the outcry. How do we how do we begin that walk together? Uh, certainly, would listen. Hey, pay attention. Put my phone down. Um, eye contact. You know, to the extent that the person talking uh, is able to have any eye contact, uh, which frequently they can't. I mean, they're just staring at the floor or off into space, and you just because. You know, the dissociation tendency in that moment is pretty strong. So I'm willing to listen. I want to be affirming. Um, do not express any disbelief. Um, and that is so not the time to defend the person who's being accused. Oh, well, Uncle so-and-so would never do that. He loves kids so much. He would never want to hurt you. So avoid any expression of disbelief or doubt, even if you aren't sure you believe it. Certainly don't communicate that in that moment. Go and process that with somebody else at a later time. But in in that moment, affirming, uh, wow, I can only imagine how hard that is for you to talk about right now. I am so thankful that you're able to share that with me. Wow, that is so courageous of you to be able to talk about this. Invite them to share more to the extent that they want to share. Uh, So if they've just kind of stuck their toe in the water and mentioned that, hey, uh, something happened to me when I was a kid and I really never talked about it. Okay, I want to communicate you're safe to talk with me right now. Commit to keep that confidential to the extent that you can. Obviously, if it's a 12-year-old talking to you, hey, this is a reportable thing. I can't promise that I won't tell anybody. Uh, I can promise that I will have your best interest at heart. I will. I will do everything that I can to help you deal with this and, and to keep you safe. Uh, I'll do everything I can to keep you from having to be in a situation like that. So if I've got a child who's reporting to me that when they go home at night, they are not safe in a sexual way, hey, I'll do everything that I can do 
to help you get out of a, a dangerous situation. I can't promise what that's going to look like. Mm. But I'll, you want to reassure, uh, provide some level of sense of safety that's a realistic sense of safety. Because, that's again, that's a big fear as somebody's talking about a current uh, abuse process that's going on is hey, they're not safe and they need to be safe. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a part of them that is desperately longing for, for a sense of safety. So I want to be able to speak to that to the extent that I can. Uh, somebody's talking about something that happened a long time ago. It's, it's somebody 18 or over. So there is no, I have to report this. Uh, that's, that's up to them. They can choose to or choose not to. Hey, what you're sharing with me right now, I just want to let you know that I commit that I'm not going to share this with anyone else. What you choose to share with me, I'll keep that confidential as long as you want me to keep that confidential. Or if there's anybody you want me to talk to, I'm, I'll be happy to do that. Mm-hmm. So if, hey, if we've got uh, you know two women who are uh, over a cup of coffee, one is sharing that this has happened uh, and they've never told their husband. Uh, if you want me to go with you when you first tell your husband, just because if you need some emotional support there, I'm willing to do that. I'm, I'm here for you. Right. That That kind of... Uh, environment uh, can be very helpful, friend to friend or or mentor uh, to younger person. You know, the, the things to avoid is the your emotion starting to take over. You know, somebody sharing with you a, a very sad, very hurtful situation uh, is not the time for you to break down uh, and and just fall apart. I'm not saying that the, the tears are inappropriate or the, you know for you to be able to to cry in that moment with them is wrong. Saying if all of a sudden your emotions become the big need instead of taking care of them, that's not a healthy situation, and I need to remove myself from that. Yeah, I don't want I don't want this to come about me. So if it's a spouse, hey, my spouse has never told me this, and I'm hearing this for the first time. My reaction shouldn't be, why have you never told me about this before? Mm. Uh, or if it's a parent, you know, and, and my 16-year-old's talking about something that happened when they were 11. My response doesn't need to be, why did you never tell me? There may be a time to cover that in a conversation, but it's not right now. Mm-hmm. So keep it about them. Keep it about keeping them safe, giving them a chance to exercise their voice, help them as best as possible to feel safe, uh, to honor the value of the information that they're sharing. Those are some bullet points that I'd uh, include in that kind of a setting. And I guess also the there is a certain stigma that the longer we go without sharing, the more difficult it is to share, mainly because I'm not sure if someone's going to believe me, especially if it's years later. Um, and, and again, I think we're seeing some of that in our society today with the, the popular movements that are encouraging people and empowering mm-hmm. them to, to say, you know, it's okay to stand up and say something and, and to share what happened to you. And and so people are, are kind of, yeah, but this happened 30 years ago. Yeah. Will that be credible? Yeah. And in my head, I always cringe when I hear people say, well, if that really happened, they would have said something you know, way back there. No. If it really happened, that, that doesn't mean they would have said anything about it before now. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, something has happened that they're able to talk about it right now. Uh, and I know from my own story, hey, what happened to me? I was 16 years old. I didn't talk about it until I was 33 years old. And if somebody had said, well, I don't believe you because you didn't, you didn't report it when you were 16, I don't know how to respond to that. Because at that point, I wouldn't have had any way to put into words why I didn't. I had no idea why I didn't. Uh, I just know that it, it was not until I was in a very safe, therapeutic environment that I was able to give voice to that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, whether it's a, a high-profile thing or just a, a friend... I would encourage people, please don't ever just you know run to the position of, well, this isn't true because 
they're just now talking about it. That That's a very common thing for people to go 5, 10, 20, 30 years before they're ever in a spot where they talk about it. Yeah. You mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but I think it goes along with the idea of how we, we discuss it, how we affirm people, how we respond when uh, when an outcry is made. Our initial response or our personal response almost always has more to do with our own situation than it does with the circumstances at right. hand. Yeah, because that just taps into emotions, beliefs, um, alliances that already exist. So if if... If I'm an adult and my sibling comes to me and says, hey, when I was 12, aunt so-and-so, uncle so-and-so did this to me. Well, if if I have really fond memories of them and I, I like them, okay, my first knee-jerk reaction is to defend them uh, because the information coming in is not congruent with the information I already hold about this person. So there's now friction. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I've got this new piece of information that doesn't fit my construct. So one of two things has to happen. Either my construct has to change, and I can accept this new information as true, and it changes the, the, the pre-existing things, or I hold on to my existing construct, and then I have to do something with this new information, so I change it or reject it, because, well, that can't be true, because it doesn't fit what I already believe about these people. Conversely, if I have experienced something like that at the hands of another family right. member, then I'm instantly responding, uh, I, I completely agree. Absolutely. Can, surely uh, your story must be true because mm-hmm. I've had that same experience myself. Right, uh, because it lines up with my pre-existing construct of you know everything that I hold true about this particular person or area. Uh, and we see that so often in churches mm. where you know, a youth minister, an elder, a pastor, where, where some, someone who is loved in the church um, is accused of some kind of sexual misconduct. Uh, man, we, we, we love that person. We respect them, and, and we n- think they'd never do something like that. So the initial re-jerk is to reject this person's making that up. It didn't really happen. They just misunderstood. Mm. Uh, when he put his hand around them, he wasn't meaning anything sexual by that. He was just you know trying to be you know show compassion and, and, and connect with them. Uh, or when, when he made this suggestive comment, uh, they took that the wrong way. He, he didn't mean that to be sexual at all. Well, the truth is that people who groom their victims will typically start off by making sexually subjective innuendos that could be taken one way or the other. So that if the person is not open or responsive to the innuendo, uh, they can instantly say, oh, I didn't mean it like that. You took that the wrong way. And then they backpedal uh, and they move on to the next target. But if the person is receptive to that, okay, then yeah, then they take that and they run with it. Mm-hmm. How we respond in a given situation, especially when it comes to allegations of sexual misconduct, that often so much taps into our own baggage and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's about us much more than it is about them, especially in that initial how, how we're going to respond moment. Right. And I, I want to encourage us as a culture and certainly our listeners as individuals uh, to resist the urge to uh, to take this topic and let it become a political pawn uh you know i don't care what you know which way you lean what uh what political candidates or uh, elected officials you support um the topic of sexual abuse and and sexual allegations should never uh, become something that becomes a political uh, tool to get to an end my hope is that we can uh, address people as individuals 
uh, and be willing to deal with the, um, the topic in a very respectful, genuine way and not allow it to become something that just is a, yet one of the other many things out there that polarizes us because we put our politics above individual situations. And when you talk about politics, you're talking more about, you know, Washington or, or those kind of things. Or Whether it's political, politics, or, church politics, yeah. <laughs> you know, just the, the whole, um, the, the alliances that we have mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, looking at things from a system perspective and not from an individual perspective. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Very Thank relevant you. to our topic, uh, to our world today. And we're seeing it uh, over and over again. Wish it wasn't, but it is. It is. Thank you very much. Steve Holiday in the studio with us. Thank you for joining us. And that's going to do it for us here at the Ultimate Escape Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information or to comment about this podcast, you can contact us at our website, ultimateescape.org. Again, that's ultimateescape.org. You'll also find lots of resources on the website, organizations that can help someone struggling with any of the things that we've talked about today. Or if you'd like to plan an event for your own location, a church or a school, again, you can find out more on ultimateescape.org. Don't forget to join us for our series of podcasts. They're available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and many other podcast platforms. So simply search for the Ultimate Escape Podcast. I'm David Chenault, and again, thank you for joining us on the Ultimate Escape Podcast. Podcast.